Welcome to Trunk Church. Come drink the blood of God with us. Bless you for being an angel Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me My name is Cosima B. Concordia, and I am a writer and a leather dyke. Hi, my name's Aurora Laborn, and I'm a struggling academic. Welcome to Drunk Church. This is going to be part three of the Insolent Saint of the Chasm, our close reading on the life and writings of lore. And we've really enjoyed diving into a figure that I think is so unknown, so unfairly unknown. And I think that one of the reasons we decided to talk about her is because she lays out so much that I think are so relevant for our contemporary thought, which I think will really serve us as we go forward in the podcast. Okay, um, so... So far, we have talked a lot about Lore's trauma. We have talked about Lore's relationship with Bataille. But one of the things that we haven't really gotten into is her political work. Like she spent some time in like Russia, Soviet Union, and was like a very staunch communist. Then later she has, you know, kind of a schism with some of the political movements. And then she calls herself an anarchist. But then she also has some things about anarchism. At several different points, she has these, (laughs) she has these big like disillusionments, but she still always remains like a deeply resolute leftist. And that remains like such an important part of her thought. And so, like, she says that the value of life can only be resistance and revolt expressed with all the energy of despair. And this despair is the great love of life, of true human values and instinctive forces of all that we experience. One cannot judge the value of anything unless it is in relation to the working class or to the efforts towards emancipation of that class. She also takes Nietzsche like into her revolutionary thought. Like she says, what if Nietzsche did more for the liberation of man than Lenin and and said to exist against and not with this does not suppress joy, but exalts it. It is not despair, but immense hope. She is really trying to think Nietzsche in a way that is like deeply politically rooted. I mean, Nietzsche certainly has been used that way, but like you often see him used either in a kind of cold, as she would probably say, in a drone way, or in a kind of regressive, conservative political way. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. It's because not only should Nietzsche not be read in drone, but he should also be read as always self-effacing, or at least in my opinion, I would argue, where he he needs to be read as a parody of himself because he was totally a masochist and he was totally super self-flagellating in the same moments that he was projecting this extreme egoist because it's always about creating points of tension and then breaking them apart and doing this internal work. And in fact, he was he was a masochist. Nietzsche was a masochist who participated in non-normative sexual relationships 
Absolutely. Well, and like Lord talks about that. And I think you can really see it like reflected in the, in the way that her work works as well. And then also Bataille, that for her, like Nietzsche is a bunch of paradoxes that cancel each other out, that there is no coherent logic, that Nietzsche's thought is about the movement of thought and that it can exist without the movement of thought and that that is crucial to thought. And so to like go back to traumatization of thought, how the moment that thought becomes completely codified, that it is no longer movable, that it is no longer changeable, is the moment in which thought dies and becomes an impressive force. Nietzschean spirit of gravity, of being for all the same good, for all the same evil. And that's what we always have to be working against. But it ends up being made to be regressive or made to be conservative, as, as you mentioned, because people just foster the conflict without putting thought into what that conflict is doing or why it's there or what side of that conflict they're on. It's not about creating an issue so you can punch down and assert yourself as a greater power. It's about lingering in the conflict and trying to understand what that conflict then does to your understanding of the world or to your understanding of your self-identity and trying to grow from that or to not necessarily grow. That might be, again, too teleological because it's not a simple forward-moving process for Nietzsche, for any of these thinkers. I think when some people think about that idea of like sitting in the conflict, they think about a sort of liberalism, you know, where it's like about like, it's a debate between equal sides, you know, or whatever. And I think like what's so clear about Laura is that she was absolutely not that. The Thai described her as being so filled with holy rage that her whole being radiated the almost imperceptible trembling of light vibrating at the edge of fire. And then she was also described with her, you got the feeling of being on the edge of a blade on specific issues of like human rights. It's not like she was like ready to debate the fascists and that she was like very clear about that. Like she said, there are moments where in order to live, in order to hope, it is necessary to know how to kill and then she says, teach this to blank, and it's, and it's marked off, which is fantastic. I think there's a lot of people that could hear that right now. So, um, yeah, it is necessary to know. We can just say that. And also, one can suppress this life or soil it. All rights, I have them. I am taking them. <laughs> God, she just rocks. I love her. I love good polemics. Reading Bataille's work on surrealism and like his critique of surrealism and then working through her correspondence. I miss good polemics when that actually meant something where it wasn't just an attack. It wasn't just being mean. Like there was a certain weight to it. I know earlier I expressed admiration about the intentionality with which she chose what to pass on to Bataille. What kind of thing do we have a lot of like, why do we have so many Picassos and versus what kind of thing do we not have a lot of? Why did Francis Bacon destroy so much of his work? And you mentioned when we talked about Bataille, but we had not a lot to say about queerness and that that is the truth. But he also was in a milieu where there were queer people and he, he did write about queer characters. So in My Mother, the, the mother, the woman with whom he has the onastic, non-copulative sexual experience of masturbating over her dead body. Um, she's a lesbian. <laughs> and that's one of the more interesting parts of her character. And in fact, in the, the edition that I have, and this is something that I was really 
shocked by are those. Um, I guess not shocked by it. See, it's actually quite fitting. Um, Mishima is the one that wrote the review. So he wrote a introduction to the like Japanese translation of Batai's work, but then it was translated into English and now published with our. So there's a lot of queerness. <laughs> oh no! Surrounding Batai. <laughs> Uh, but, <laughs> uh, man, <laughs> that fucking little gay fascist! I'll tell you what. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I just reread Ordeal by Rose. I'm gonna. I will admit, I returned to his work after reading that introduction. Oh, I mean, Mishima's writing is incredible. No argument there. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, what a what yeah. a piece of shit. Oh yeah, homo nationalism, as Jasper Buar writes. It is scary. It is evil. Truly, yeah. Like homo nationalism has been around for a long time, folks. Like this is not a new, like mm-hmm. you know, Pete Buttigieg, Erlog, Cabin Republican thing. Like we've we've always had deeply evil gays as um, <laughs> as bad gays talked about in depth. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> No, I'm just thinking about the different, the, all the pride flags and about how just like Mishima was just, it was just the imperial flag of Japan. Just, that oh was my his. god, that was his queer identity. Oh. That is so... <laughs> <laughs> oh man. It's, oh god. I just think we should oh. all validate him in, you know, like, it's pretty <laughs> fucked up to, like, say that you don't agree with his flag if it's his identity. I just think that that's, you know. Oh, my God. <laughs> Am I being cross? I'm being cross. I'm sorry. Uh, homo-nationalists are people. They have feelings. They, they're... Human, all too human. <laughs> exactly. I wonder what there might be surrounding Bataille and more in relation to queerness because there was a lot of it happening and it just so much of it has been suppressed. So Simone de Beauvoir was probably bisexual. And in fact, she had a lot of sex with women in her youth. This we've known for a very long time. It's just been suppressed by Sartre and also by her literary heir. Uh, So I wonder what's being, what's being hidden. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a question that I would like more people to dive into. That is for sure. Yes. For me, the most political part about her work is how she mobilizes narrative and how she leans into her trauma in a way that she doesn't let herself be um, victim or victimized. And I think that that's incredibly powerful. So I think that the way that she honestly mobilizes her experience is remarkable. And there's a lot of things that we can learn from that, especially nowadays where it feels like censorship is coming from all sides. Absolutely. And the way that we were talking about how she said in some ways that maybe Nietzsche did more for the revolution than than Lenin did, this process of thinking, thinking against always disrupting thought that Bataille and Lore are both so invested in, I think is really important for the efficacy of continued um, leftist movements. Because one thing that organizations are very good at doing is 
coalescing under a stable doctrine. (laughs) And then that's, I think, when they very quickly become conservative. Oh, yeah, they immediately become hegemonic. So as soon as we start rainbow washing, pink washing, is there such a thing as red washing? <laughs> red washing. Slap a, <laughs> a uh, yeah, I'm sure. hammer and sickle sure. on it. <laughs> I haven't thought about it, but I'm going to say it's real. <laughs> it's remarkable how this could have been published yesterday and they would still be as relevant as it was then. There's something about like how political movements and discourse functions that is so built into um, non-disagreement. And I think people confuse refusing to compromise on certain issues, like for instance, human rights, like basic respect and dignity of certain types of people. So for instance, like we are opposed to transphobia, period. We are opposed to people who are against bodily autonomy, period. I think that those are very reasonable things and actually the correct things to exclude people for. But but what about J.K. Rowling's trauma? Oh, Jesus fucking Christ, Aurora. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, okay. So. <laughs> Consensus is evil, actually. Yeah, thought becomes stagnant very, very quickly. And I think movements and like leftist spaces that I see as vibrant and worth being in are where there's genuine debate to be had. And that should absolutely not be confused with a neoliberal marketplace of ideas or a right-wing debate-me-bro Nazi type Mm. stuff who I both think are abhorrent, but that we have to be able to not like tear each other apart on things that don't involve basic human dignity, basically. Mm -hmm. I think another reason why leftist spaces become so stagnant, somehow like the notion of safety has become so co-opted where discomfort is bad, even though discomfort is so much a part of learning and like political spaces, like politics should be a little bit uncomfortable. I can't think of like a, a reason why it could or would be otherwise or why we shouldn't all be offended by politics. Like politics is just inherently very offensive. Part of being a marginalized person is often or the vast majority of the time in any sort of shared space is to often feel quite unsafe, often to feel very uncomfortable. That's like certainly my experience as a trans woman and, and that and that's as a um as a white trans woman so that you know that's compounded in so many other ways for for trans people of color and to think that that's gotten co-opted into this place where it's like oh this other marginalized person has brought up an experience that is different from mine and that's making me uncomfortable and then that's violence that is the way that racism functions that trans misogyny functions and all these ways where it's like oh that's so weird that the people that you keep on marking as unsafe and aggressive all happen to be the most politically marginalized like that's very interesting how that works the most vulnerable the most vulnerable in the room suddenly becomes the aggressor that's not how power works but that certainly is how people co-opt power and keep themselves in positions of power yeah. Laura's also just so great. She's very clear that like violence is sometimes necessary. She's not 
arguing from this position of like pacifism, like obviously when fascism comes and, th- and that's the whole problem in a nutshell is that fascism is in all of us. Fascism is a primordial force mm-hmm. that it is our job to root out of ourselves and it is our job to continually work against wherever it appears at any cost. Because <laughs> it turns out that it's very easy and comfortable just to be a fascist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like most fascists think they're good people. They're really into family. <laughs> yeah, really into family. But I was thinking about this the other day, like thinking about like, the neighborhood that I grew up where there's all of these liberals and if and when fascism really does come in the extreme, like in a full level, so many of them would immediately become fascists. (laughs) Some of them would certainly put their lives down. Some of them would genuinely do the right thing. It's not a blanket condemnation, (laughs) but the second that the institutions start reflecting back like, oh, you know, all blank group of marginalized people must be put into camps, especially if they don't have specific loved ones that are super close to them, the chance that they will go along with that and end up becoming enforcers of that, or at the very least, not go against that in any meaningful way, because there's a risk to themselves. It's just, it's really high. (laughs) So also, um, uh, Laura... (laughs) Like in reference to her family and being around people who live this sort of farce, she talks about continuing in it as a will for humiliation, kind of a will to humiliation. But it's like her only response that she can recommend is to flee, literally flee, those of which you can only exchange absurd remarks about others that are just like them. So just run away, absolutely never, never return, only exchange remarks with those in which you can be yourself about and don't have to hide elements of yourself about as much as you can do that safely. (laughs) I also double underlined that whole letter. It was amazing. I'm really glad that you brought up humiliation, though, because while she revels in reappropriating things like filth, defilement, a notion of integrity that is at the same time a porosity of leaning into being undone by others, a welcoming of nothingness. The limit is humiliation, and that's in line with what actual torture is. And I I think that in, and forgive me for name dropping, but I, I do think that references are important. So in the body in pain. Um, um, I've never had to say the name out loud. Attain scary, scary. Yeah, I know. I I love the body in pain. It's so good. I definitely want us to do an episode on it eventually. And Richard Rorty as well. And I would also argue. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, roast me on that one. But um, so Richard Rorty, Amare, Primo Levi, also. Rorty's reading of Orwell, and I'm sorry to have said his name so many times. Say it one more time, then he'll appear in my apartment, um, so I won't. Rorty, Rorty, Rorty. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, um, <laughs> but humiliation is what torture is, so it isn't just 
causing physical pain. It isn't just taking things away from someone. It isn't just punishment. It isn't just being undone because allowing oneself to be undone and being vulnerable is a necessary part of the human condition. It is being so humiliated that you can no longer make sense of yourself as a human being. So she demarcated that. She's like, no, humiliation is something else. She had, I think, a super nuanced and really thoughtful understanding of the vulnerability of, of, of harm, of how those can be the most integral parts of self-making, but then also the most dangerous. It's super relevant to the issues that we're dealing with today, but then it also actually kind of outshines a lot of the work that's being done, too. It is more radical than a lot of the current work that's being done on those, on those topics. Laura has this really remarkable piece that's about a page and a half long called Fragments and Outlines of Erotic Texts. And it's this really extreme story about this fraught relationship between a man and a woman, but with whom the dynamics were not fully negotiated. And so with whom there could not have been conditions for consent to a lot of the things that he did to her. And so the story describes these like BDSM sex acts or just See, I feel like you should be the one to describe it because you might do a better job. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Like, I, I can feel myself going to professor mode where it's like, I have to say this in a very particular way so as to not offend my students. So again, as most of Laura's writings were kind of found all in this folder um, after it was already past the point of communication by Bataille, this text is just called Fragments and Outlines of Erotic Texts. So it's hard to know how complete she imagined this to be. But it seems to be very much about her abusive relationship, one of the abusive relationships she had about this man who definitely did things that were not fully negotiated and, and therefore like consent could have never happened and who just seemed like a deeply cruel person. But it's hard to know much about that relationship because all of the letters around that time period were burnt. So it's basically the story of this man and this woman who pass each other, they're complete strangers. And then after this glance and where he kind of acknowledges her and then insults her, she slaps him and runs away. And then that initial interaction of rejection is then what begins this really intense interaction where she's forced to like roll in shit and mud and carefully guiding this trollop toward a sewer opening covered with filth. She rolled over her arms alongside her body, prey to delirium and to the sight of his restless and triumphant sex. And then basically within that, it's represented as a kind of like religious experience. Like she was all prayer, all offering. He spit into her half-parted lips and bit her slender fingers, which he turned into a mouthful of tender cartilage. So there's like this literal consumption of each other, of fluids, of everything that is profane. And then at the very end, through him offering his cock as communion, which she then takes in, 
there's this forgiveness and then they're suddenly completely purged from all of the filth and while they still continue to like do all of these blasphemous acts against the altar against the silver christ which she ends up writing (laughs) and like collapsing on this altar all of that happens once they've kind of been renewed so once his cum was swallowed her fingers grew back her nails polished Angelus and her injured body regained full health. And so I think this story does like a really great job at encapsulating what we talk about with eroticism, where the sacred and the profane are inherently tied to one another. And also I think does a really good job at articulating some of the ways in which leather queer, like leather dyke practices are, we often find them to be these deeply religious experiences that are ritualized, that are this deep engagement with the taboo, with defilement, with degradation, with all types of different taboo things. And then as a kind of reversal that then makes you feel renewed. And it does feel very, uh, often feels like very divine. And so like the practice of aftercare in BDSM is after a scene that both the top and the bottom should have some planned things to take care of one another, plans for like how they make sure each of them are emotionally okay walking away from whatever they did. And I think that that sense of renewal is, uh, I've just, (laughs) I have certainly felt like that many times. I think that this short story is actually super political because she's reclaiming an experience or she's resetting the terms that certainly for whatever happened between her and this man weren't her own but in the story she's both really brutally honest about the violence of the scenes that they created but then there's also this element of the fantastic and this element of reclaiming the narrative and really leaning into the trauma for a kind of renewal. So it's like she's doing her own aftercare. And yeah, I found this to be really, really political in a way that I think is worth lingering on. Or just remarkable how political something this visceral and erotic can be. I think that's a really beautiful reading. Some people definitely do connect certain desires or certain kinks with like certain traumas. And there certainly can be these kind of healing relationships through experiencing, re-experiencing things in a controlled way that you have a sense of ownership over and that you've decided to enter. But then also that's complicated because desire is always a little bit ineffable to us. It's always outside of the ego as the coherent entity. And so it's not always that simple of like, why do I desire this? Like, Sometimes you can certainly find reasons, but um, sometimes you can't. And both are absolutely okay. But still that playing with shame and the taboo. And also in, in future episodes, we're going to get a little bit more into contemporary consent discussions and specifically going into some new work being done on things like traumatophilia. And so I think all of that is kind of a good framework to work off of. Yeah. It's also important to understand the history of these conversations. Turns out that we've been having them for a very long time. I'm glad that you took the time to talk about the relationship between desire and the ineffable, because certainly not everyone that is kinky has experienced trauma. Not everyone that 
uh, desires to create intense scene um, is doing it for trauma or even desires to experience something because they, they actually want to experience it. Sometimes it's nice to just want something that you can't have or that you know that you're not going to get. Um, but a theme that comes up in her other short story, which is, again, super trauma-informed and really political in its, as you mentioned, and its um, critique of the family and critique of the religious institution and critique of the kind of silence that that fosters and how it creates cycles and circles of abuse. So not only was her sister abused, but she was abused, and she definitely alludes to there being ongoing abuse against other little girls by the priest. But she describes her first communion in a way that certainly could be read as like taking the wafer and swallowing it, but it definitely reads, or at least when I read it, it sounded like forced fellatio and swallowing cum for the first time. But she describes it as yeah, taking communion. And for her to, in that short story, the story of the little girl, describe the kind of betrayal and the shame that she felt being made to do that thing and it being communion, it being this pillar of the community, the priest, and it being condoned by her mother and having to also watch her sister suffer through that same experience and have to undergo the same kind of silencing. Um, for her to reclaim communion or to be able to utilize that metaphor in a renewing sense. Mm -hmm. And you already read this quote and I just love it so much. So when she had taken communion and once his cum was swallowed, her fingers grew back and her injured body regained full health. To reclaim one's sexuality after something like that and to be able to rework it is really politically poignant. And also to be able to write honestly about these things, something that like a, a wall that I feel like I've fallen against is that I can't talk about the things that I want to talk about in political or academic contexts because it upsets people. <laughs> and I know we were just talking about this, but I can't assign certain readings because my students simply won't read them because it upsets them to read these intensive scenes that are like from history that are like the torture of queer folks by police, like, history, really important history, I understand that we owe an obligation to those texts and those images to teach them well, to teach them with a lot of reverence and dignity towards those that experience that. But the inclination to look away, it's just so pervasive and it, and I like pedagogically don't know how to handle it. That's why I loved this reading so much. And I don't know how to handle that. I don't know how to handle that political question. Like how do we read and teach difficult texts or show certain images? One of the reasons she is such a poignant figure for me is this like intense need to not look away and to like really embrace the self and embrace desire, even in those contradictions, even in difficulty, and also to give herself so entirely. Like, I've always been someone who throws myself so entirely into relationships. And I think that there are, you know, there's a certain type of person that can certainly relate to that. And that that has always kind of been the center of my life. And I think that that is something that is seen as a regressive impulse in a lot of contemporary feminist standards, not just from like boring trad people, but just this idea of centering a relationship in your life or centering relationships in your life and having that be the primary thing. I think that there's often this real push 
to center, like, especially in a capitalist world, to center work or to center political projects or like your creative life. And Laura's ongoing desire and confrontation with that desire to give herself entirely while still maintaining this fierce empathy, this fierce ability to think against the norm and to stand up for marginalized folks and think far beyond all of these very famous intellectual men who were around her, but to still maintain that value of being lost, to like fully communicate yourself to the point that the boundary between self and other doesn't become as clear. To the fact that she haunted Bataille after her death for the entirety of his life. He was always chasing after her ghost. Yeah. I think being a haunting is... (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what I want to say. You want to be passionately haunted by the ghost of your lover? I would be down with haunting. (laughs) Haunting? You don't want to be haunted by your passion? No, I want to to die before my passions die. For sure. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Aurora? Do you want to be haunted or haunting? Like, I used to want to be the haunter. Bataille's version, or like Lore's version of the manic pixie dream girl, where like I'm the inspiration and I'm the exciting cool one who just is too much for life and I inspire all this remarkable stuff and I <laughs> have all these intense, passionate relationships. But now I, I think I'm entering into my um, haunty era of my life, <laughs> where I think that I deserve. Uh, to be haunted. I deserve a manic pixie dream girl to give me passion and meaning. (laughs) I believe in you. I think that you can do it. Thank you. Manifest a ghost. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Ghost lady. I think it's also of note that I've heard about lore from a handful of people. I think Bataille is like a commonly read figure by a lot of philosophy-leaning leather queers because of, you know, kind of that baseline of eroticism. But like, lore specifically is very unknown. And I think maybe there's, before us reading her, Mm -hmm. I think I know two people, and they're both leather dykes. (laughs) So I think that's meaningful. That's the audience that she found, you know, like the people that have sought her out, that she's very successfully communicated to. (laughs) (laughs) One of the last things that I would really like to say is that Bataille in his like last foreword or his last like notes for the book that are like published in like a later edition of it, he talks about how Lore is still this like figure that haunts him, how like even though Lore disappears from his life, that she is still this figure that is like deeply meaningful to him. And then the end of this is, I have found death in the guise of nakedness, adorned with garters and black stockings. Who approached a more human being? Who bore more horrible fury? This fury has led me by the hand to my hell. I have told my life story. Death has taken the name of Lore. And there's something, like, after his experiences around, like, Lore's grave and and just like the really heartbreaking scenes around her death and his relationship to death as the erotic impulse, as the religious impulse, as the most meaningful impulse, you know, like as the final drive towards continuity, that um, there's something just like so deeply beautiful and erotic about that and romantic, even though it sounds to like everyone else 
that doesn't have that context as like, oh, my evil ex is coming from the grave to track me to hell. <laughs> you know, like that's how it reads, right? But that's just not at all what's happening. And I don't know. It's really, really beautiful. She wrote this poem. And according to him, um, the line that she quotes from the poem was one of the last things that she wrote. So she begins this poem with a reference to Dante and to the gates of hell. So abandon all hope. And then she repeats that there's a nakedness to her. And then at the very end, she quotes Blake. She says, drag your plows over the bones of the dead. When you drag your plow over the bones of the dead, you're disturbing the resting place. You're reincorporating the dead back into life. That's so beautiful. I mean, I think that's also so interesting about like her pieces being so, you know, not fragments, but but certainly like nev- never released in like their final form is like I certainly relate to like, so many of her phrases and so many of her sentences like appear several times within like the relatively small amount of stuff that we have on her. And that's just how I feel all the time. I'll like write a poem and then I'll like turn like a stanza of the poem into a, like a sentence in a short story. And that would happen forever until something is like actually in a place where like I can't change it. And then even then I'll I'll self-plagiarize to hell. So now we're going to do confessions. Your first confession is the erotic dream I had about one of my best friends and her girlfriend was one of the most gentle, tender, and healthy fantasies I've ever had. And sometimes it's the only thing that sustains me while I navigate my own bullshit. Oh, that's really sweet. What do you think the ethics are of telling people you've had dreams about them? I think it really depends on your relationship. Yeah, it depends a lot on your relationship. I think there's definitely people who that would not be weird. And there's a lot of people that that would be very weird. I think it really depends on your own relationship. Yeah. And I mean, I think lots of the people that would think it would be really weird are people that would think it would be really weird if anyone did that ever. (laughs) So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Would you like to know if, like, if someone had a dream about you? I don't know if I would like to know, but maybe, maybe it would be sweet. I would like to know if it was, like, people that I'm, like, close to, like, random people in my DMs being like, oh, my God, I dream about fucking you every night. I mean, like, that's fine. (laughs) But, like, um, like, you know, like, I go for it. Um, But it's also, like, that doesn't uh, do much for me, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so confession number two. The winter break where I learned where the G-spot was, I didn't spend any time with my family. Everyone remembers how much I, in quotes, slept that break. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Learning some self-pleasure is good. I love that. I feel like everyone has a story, whether or not they are honest about it or um, to themselves or to others, where they discovered masturbation or they gave themselves their first orgasm that in in some kind of way and they just kind of preoccupied with that for a minute <laughs> yeah no it's definitely true i mean i don't know it's weird like when i first started getting sexually aroused and having orgasms it was so like intertwined with dysphoria that it was like never an entirely pleasant experience it was you know so wrapped up in so many other like weird fucked up feelings but certainly later in second puberty, I definitely feel that for sure. <laughs> okay. 
So confession number three. I am so deeply in love with my partner and I fall more in love with them every day. I love being T4T. Oh, yeah. oh, I love that. That's lovely. Having intimate relationships with other trans people, I think, is a very deeply meaningful thing and really makes you relate to your body in different ways. And I recommend whether you're dating them or not, just every trans person needs to at least have very intimate trans friendships and, you know, maybe maybe fuck each other or, or love each other too if you're into that because, uh, yeah, it's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Confession number four. I fantasize about killing my beloved's abusers often. I also do that. Yeah. Yeah, this is a very uh, very reasonable and very human. Seems, yeah, very human. Um, I love this next one. Oh my god. Go for it. Oh, I get to go twice because I love this one so much. Oh wait, no, this is mine. You're right. It's okay. your turn, yeah. I bloodlet myself, collect it, and drink it. Amazing. I absolutely love this for you. I have some friends online who I know do this, so maybe it's one of you. But whoever it is, keep living <laughs> your best life. Then find find the nectars of life from yourself. It's great. Amazing. Oh, I'm so sad. I missed that course on blood play. Yeah, my daddy went to the workshop. You know, I've done blood play before, but now I get to be cut open in new and exciting ways. So. It's pretty cool. Ooh, that's amazing. Oh, I, I thought you went to that. I was like so excited to pick your brain. But the next one. So hopefully there will be a next one. And then we'll go to that one. You totally should. We're, we're planning a whole mm-hmm. thing with like a throat slitting and like, like not my actual throat being slit, but like it'll look like my throat slit. It's going to be fun. Sounds amazing. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so the final confession as much as I don't want to care, I actively obsess over passing as cis, and it makes me feel lesser if I don't. This is really hard, and this is a pressure that all of society puts on us, and you don't have to, but you also don't need to feel shame for wanting that for either personal or safety reasons. But you also don't have to feel bad for if you didn't want that or if you didn't pass well, thank you all so much for listening along with us on this lore journey. I think we've really had a blast really getting to know her over this time, and we hope that you did too. Next, we're going to be diving into some of Susan Sontag's writing about fascism and gay leathermen and Assad a little bit. So exciting. <laughs> Yeah, if we got you a little titillated with our discussion of Mishima and his homo-nationalism, just wait until the next episode. Yeah, the fascism is is here. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you for being an angel Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me Bless you for building a new dream Just when my old dream crumbled so helpless